Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Our youth, 6th through 12th grade, will go ahead and be dismissed at this time. The rest of us, if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 3, I want to share a few verses. A few verses that I feel really are impactful if we would take the time to meditate on them and take the time to understand what Scripture is calling us to do. I think most of us would give an emphatic yes if we were asked if we would want to have the mind of Christ. So what if I told you, I know I sound like Neo or from, from the Matrix, but what if I told you that just about everything you've been taught and everything you encounter in this world is purposefully designed to keep you from having the mind of Christ. It's not possible to have the mind of Christ in the world we live in without intentionality and without forsaking the things that your old mind has been conditioned to be dependent on. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on the setup today, but I do want to make, make us aware at the outset that you may be facing, if you choose to engage the mission of having God reset your mind and make it in, bring it into alignment with the mindset of the kingdom of God, it may be one of the hardest challenges you'll ever deal with in your spiritual walk. But for those who want to walk in alignment with the will of God and truly, as Jesus called us to, love the Lord your God with all your mind, let's look together at Colossians chapter 3. Paul gives another one of these statements like we talked about last week. It's a responsive statement, but he says, Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus... Lord, we look forward to that day of glory. We look forward to the blessings that you have. And Lord, we want to embrace everything that you want to do in us and through us in this world. And so, Father, I ask right now that we would just with intentionality push aside every distraction, every desire of our flesh, Lord, and do as Scripture calls us to focus, set our minds and our hearts on your kingdom right now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever had somebody call your name and you just kind of snap out of it? Maybe they have to call it a couple times and say, hey, Dave, Dave, Earth to Dave. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm here. Maybe you're in class and you're asleep and the teacher calls, oh, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm here, I'm awake. I think sometimes that people have their, their, the idea that that's what it means kind of have your, your mind fixed on the things of heaven. Uh, that, you're, that you're on the earth, but you're not really aware, not really plugged into the reality around you. And I want to mention that because that's not what Scripture is calling us to. I have never fixed my eyes on Jesus and walked into a wall. Never, never once happened. Nor is Scripture talking about us becoming ignorant or unaware of the world around us. As a matter of fact, the most effective missionaries, church planners, disciple makers are the ones who are absolutely aware of the conditions on the ground, so to speak, and they're passionately intentional about bringing change to it. Now, the world has a saying, don't be so earthly-minded that you're no earthly good. But I would counter that by saying, if you really were heavenly-minded, you'd be of immeasurable benefit to the world. And so I want to begin with the fact that there is a vast difference between being religiously obsessed, like too many are, 
and being heavenly minded. Now, I played for years in bands. And I tell you what, we never confuse groupies with musicians. Right. They're two. They're two totally different things. The musician wants to put in the work. Now, they may have an ego. That's true. But but they are willing to put in the work to learn their craft, to learn some skills to get up on that stage and entertain people. A groupie just wants the coolness by association. Now, when I was starting out in bands and I'm this teenage kid, man, and I joined this band that's already really established and everybody lo- Man, I, I weighed about 85 pounds. I'm like 5'6". I had hair out there. I look like a frustration pencil. Y'all remember those? <laughs> but suddenly, put me on stage. I'm cool. Everybody wants to be my friends. Hey, man, what's going on? Handshakes and everything. And so a groupie wants the coolness. And we want to be backstage and everything. We want to be hanging out with the band without the work. And I think that's what too many of us are. We're like Christian groupies. Right. We're watching Christian TV all day and we're listening to Christian radio. and We know all the songs and everything. We can use the vernacular and the verbiage. But do we really look like Jesus? Are we really putting in the effort to become what God has called us to be? It's not that we're being so heavenly minded. We're no earthly good. It's just that we're so heavenly minded that God now gets. Let me tell you something. Some of us, we want God's attention and we want God to take us seriously, but we're not taking God seriously. God will take you as seriously as you take him. All of us have as much God as we really want. Let that sink in. God's not keeping his spirit from us. God's not keeping his blessings from us. And God has told us in his word how we walk in his favor, how we walk in his transformation. And so if intellectually we're saying, well, but pastor, look, I really want... Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure the groupie wants the coolness factor. But the groupie's not willing to do what it takes to stand on that stage. And so as Christians, God gives us the prescription and he tells us, this is how you walk in my blessing and this is how you obtain my favor and this is how you receive the transformation that I want to give you. But what we want to do is we want to look for shortcuts. We want to look for avenues. Well, okay, I understand that, but, but maybe there's an easier way. To do that. Look, scripture calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus for two significant reasons. First is imitation. We tend to imitate what we set our eyes on. You ever see like eight year old boys and they're watching wrestling? What do they start doing? Wrestling, right? They're gonna imitate what they're watching. But secondly, we fix our eyes on Jesus for direction. Now, some of you remember back in the days before smartphones and GPS, somebody, you tell somebody, I'm gonna go over here, and they're like, oh, cool, I'll follow you. And then they want to set the pace. You know what I'm talking about, right? They want to follow you, but they want to put cruise control where they're comfortable. And then and they keep drifting back. And finally, I remember one guy, he kept doing that to me and he kept drifting back. I finally said, get lost then, right? <laughs> Dwell in darkness, brother. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to end up at the right destination and you're going to end up driving around for hours because you want to make a statement and a point about my driving. And sometimes we're like, well, hey, Lord, I, you know, Job's sin, and we just, my, my family, we just finished up our, in our devotional time. We have a devotional time at night, and we just finished up the book of Job. And at the end of the book, what God says to Job's three friends is, you need to offer a sacrifice because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, Job's sin was that he decided to put God in a box. He spoke what was true of God, but he basically said, look, I know this about God. And I understand this. This is who I know him to be. 
and this doesn't make sense to me, so therefore God isn't acting fairly. And so you see chap, more than 30 chapters of Job's friends telling him how God is. And then you see this young punk just show up. I mean, out of nowhere, he just starts, if, if you want wisdom, listen to me. I mean, he's making these statements. You're like, yo, and he's speaking some things that are true, but I mean, he's speaking them in arrogance. And I notice at the end of the book, God doesn't tell Job to pray for that guy. He tells Job to pray for his three friends. But God interrupts all this like theological debate about who he is. And he says to Job, brace yourself like a man. I'll speak to you and you will listen. Look, if God ever says to you, brace yourself, you best brace yourself. And so God starts like, hey, Job, where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you when, when, I, when I told the sea this far, no farther? Uh, when I created the crocodile, you think you're going to make a pet out of that crocodile? You think you're going to take that home to your little kids for them to play with? Where, where? And so Job makes the smartest decision he could make. He says, I clap my hand over my mouth and I'm just shutting up now, Lord. Right? Because... What I was saying is, based on what I know of you, this doesn't, and, and can I be honest with you? We know this. I don't care how long you've been walking with God. You know this much about God. You know this much about God. Because you are going to be learning stuff. God is so vast. God is so immeasurable. You'll be learning of God for eternity and never get to the end of God. So where we sit right now, if we're a beginning, and that's, that's oftentimes our sin is that we want to contain God within what we know of him right now. And we want to move in that direction. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Set your minds on things above. It's a much vaster, much greater, much more expansive atmosphere for you to understand who God is. Fixing our eyes on Jesus is a necessary first step to do what the word is calling us to do. And that is the exchange, that is the exchange of one way of thinking and one set of values with another. And there's three things that I see here that we need to do if we want that to be true. And the first is to gain a functional understanding of the culture you want to become a part of. Ruth and I, uh, years ago for our, for our anniversary, my parents lived in Switzerland and they said, hey, what, you know, why don't you come on over? And we spent a, a couple of weeks there. In, and most of the time we were in Switzerland, but a couple days we spent in the Alsace-Lorraine region of France. Now in the age of credit cards, most everything is automatic. But for the two days we were in the countryside of France, uh, we were far from a big city and some of the shops and restaurants didn't even take credit cards. So I had to call the States and get my PIN number. I didn't know what my PIN number was for my credit card. I had to call the States, get my PIN number, make a withdrawal at an ATM so that I would have some French currency. Now, if I was in Puerto Rico, if I was in Guam, if I was in the US Virgin Islands, I wouldn't have to do that. Why? They use the same currency. But anytime there is a shift in legal authority, there will be a difference in currency. Can I say that again? Anytime there's a shift in legal authority, there is an exchange of currency. And it isn't just confined to that area. There will also be a marked difference in thought, culture, and values. Look at Colossians 1.13. For he has, past tense, rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us, again, past tense, into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Our passport has been exchanged. We are now citizens of heaven. Whether we look like it, act like it, that is the first step to the cultural exchange. One of the, the most effective infiltrations that the enemy has accomplished in the church 
is to convince the culture that, 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 or convince us that the culture that we see is pretty much the kingdom of heaven with some slight modifications. But let me tell you something. I ministered for 17 years in, in southern New England, and most of our churches were Caribbean, Haitian, Jamaican churches. Now, I, I know having been in Switzerland, literally, my, like no matter what, my dad would take the bus to work. And he noticed that no matter what, no matter what the weather was like, no matter what the traffic was like, if the sign said the bus would be there at 5.03, it was there at 5.03. And finally, he asked the bus driver, he said, how is it that every day, no matter what the traffic's like, no matter what the weather's like, you're here at the exact time you're supposed to be here? He points to his watch and he says, this was not made in Japan. Like, yeah, see, that's Swiss culture. <laughs> Ruth and I went to an IMAX theater. We were going to, I don't even know what the movie was about, some, probably something about the Alps or whatever. So we're there, like, it's the movie supposed to start at like 6. Like 6.03, somebody comes out and apologizes. They're having some kind of technical difference. And they apologize three minutes late. Now, let me contrast that with the culture in the Caribbean church. <laughs> I was scheduled to preach uh, Southern Connecticut down near New York City, uh, Norwalk or something. And, and, and I hit a lot of traffic. I'm, the, the, the service is starting at 7 o'clock. I'm there at 6.59, and man, I am mortified. I am just embarrassed. I'm here at 6.59. The door, you know, they're, they're starting at 7. The doors were still locked. The door. So, so we're hanging around. About 10 minutes later, somebody comes and unlocks the door. A little bit after that, somebody starts showing up, but he's just kind of hitting on the drums. And I'm just sitting in the seat. A little bit after that, somebody's plucking on a bass. Somebody walks in, somebody plays again. I'm not sure exactly when worship started. It's not like here, well, Daniel's saying, stand up, we're going to worship now. It's like at some point in all that, somebody starts singing and, and they start worshiping. I think I got up to preach. Man, this is a school night for a youth service. I got up to preach like 945, right? <laughs> totally, totally different culture, right? Different, if it's San Francisco culture, Amish culture, different culture. Let me tell you something. There is a much greater difference between the culture of earth and the culture of heaven than San Francisco and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Radically different. And it's our responsibility to become citizens of a kingdom whose culture is so vastly different than ours, we can't even wrap our minds around it. So, so here's the thing. If you never get into the Word, never seek the illumination of the Holy Spirit to know that culture, you'll never have any idea whether you're getting close to it. And that's why the second and great uh, and, and related strategy of the enemy in this generation is to get the church to abandon the priority of the study of the Word of God. And I see this all the time. I see influential leaders who will talk about nothing else, your destiny, defeating strongholds, enhancing your relationships, on and on. Nothing wrong with those things. But if that's where our focus is, if our focus is on the things of this world, if our focus is on the things that are holding us back, if our focus is on our relationship, then we're never going to develop the mindset of setting our hearts, setting our minds on heaven. The word of God acclimates you to the coming kingdom. So if your focus is here, you won't see the word as being all that essential. And only when you see it can you move into the, the, the next arena. And that is living a life that is immersed in that culture. The moment you were saved, you were recreated, you were transformed, you were born again. That change was not just an internal change. 
That change was a legal change. Like I said, you were moved from being a citizen of the kingdom of earth to a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. 1 Peter 2.9, you are right now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I, I think back during the Cold War, the, the Soviets would immerse spies into the culture and language of the United States so effectively. They spoke English better than 90% of all Americans. They, they spoke without an accent. They knew our history better. I, I remember watching a movie where they suspected a, a prisoner of war of being a spy because he knew too many answers to the questions. You must be a spy. No American would know all those things. In order to move from one culture and one set of values and ideals to another, you have to immerse yourself in, in it. And, and many of us don't understand the disciplines that we're called to in Scripture are for our benefit. How many know that science and studies have, have shown people who pray live longer? They have a greater sense of peace. Couples that pray together daily have such a low divorce rate it's almost immeasurable. People who tithe very seldom go bankrupt and they have a much greater sense of financial peace in their lives. People who fast don't end up in addiction. They don't end up having affairs very rarely because they know how to curtail and control the flesh. So when God calls us to these disciplines and he says in his word, discipline yourself unto godliness, it's not because he needs an ego kick. He's doing it for our benefit. He's giving us vehicles and mechanisms into our lives to which we can be transformed. Discipline yourself. Look, there's a lot of people who pray who aren't godly. There's a lot of people who serve who aren't godly. A lot of people who know the word who aren't godly. But when the Bible says study to show yourself approved, when Jesus said when you pray, when Jesus said when, he didn't say if. So when you fast, when you give. Why? Because these things are necessary to become. Look, you can, the, the guys who flew planes into the World Trade Center prayed all the time. It's not the discipline that is the godliness, but it is the means to becoming godly when our minds are focused on the things of, of the kingdom. Discipline yourself unto godliness. Don't confuse the two. So what, would you, what, what do you think would happen to your perspective if you were to spend, let's say, an hour in heaven? Would you ever want to come back? Would, would you find rudeness or apathy or, uh, you know, towards suffering or lack of love acceptable ever again? No. In only one hour, your entire set of values would be transformed. It actually wouldn't even take that long. When you look at the people like Isaiah who got called up in the throne room of God, look at somebody like John. Man, I fell on my face as a dead man. Isaiah, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm dead. Because, because I, I have unclean lips and I live among the people. of He had a problem with, with the things that came out of his mouth problem with the words that he said, they were displeasing to the Lord. It really didn't seem like such a big deal because he was so much better than the culture around him. That's why it's so dangerous when somebody calls you on something, the Holy Spirit convicts you and you say, hey, it's not that bad. Well, if you're comparing it to murderers and rapists and all that, yeah, I guess it's not that bad. But who of us, if convicted or challenged about our sin, would say, you know what, comparing myself to Jesus, I'm not that bad, guy, bad a guy. How arrogant that would be sound, right? You know, I mean, I know I do this stuff, but you know, I, I'm not that much worse off than Jesus. Huh? No, we'd never say something like that. So what we do is we shift our focus to the culture we live in, compare it to that, and then say, hey, that sin's not that bad. But God says, no, 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 no. Set your minds on things above. 
Set your minds on the throne of God where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's a lot of Christians, we don't give a thought to the hurting or the missionary in the field. And we can be rude and unfeeling and, and we secretly fear the return of Christ Jesus because we have not, as, as 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, we have not disciplined ourselves unto godliness. We cannot have dual citizenship in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this earth. We have to make a choice. If I became a citizen, look, this isn't, this isn't about running down your culture. This isn't about, but, but at some point you have to recognize, I need to reject the culture that I was born into. Rich Mullins put it this way. No one tells you when you get born here how much you'll come to love it and how you'll never belong here. I love that line. I, I remember a, an episode of Law and Order and Fred Dalton Thompson was, he's a, a fascinating guy. He passed on a few years ago. He was a senator for years and years. Um, he was a senator from Tennessee, uh, but he was also an actor. He was in like The Hunt for Red October. He was in several movies. And he played the district attorney for, for uh, Manhattan District. And, and they're going through these things where they're wrestling with these moral dilemmas that they're facing in this case and things that it brought up. And he's talking with his assistant district attorney, Jack McCoy. And, he, and, and, and Jack's complaining about, you know, these compromises and these things that have that they, they don't seem unjust. And, and Fred Dalton Thompson's character, Arthur Branch, turns to him and says, you know, the American justice system is the worst in the world, except for all the others. That's the point. No matter how good your culture is, it's still broken. It's still defective. It's still totally infected by the curse of sin and death. Paul, and, and nobody was more proud of his, his upbringing, his Jewish heritage... He talks about it. He said, look, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, man. I, I was an Israelite circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. Man, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I was the next big thing. And he says, but I consider all that refuse. Now, that's an interesting term because around Jerusalem, there were several gates. And if you read the book of Acts, you know, one of them was called the beautiful gate. And you see a, a beggar, a cripple who's and, and he's sitting there because of the contrast, right? Because, I mean, you have this beautiful, ornate gate and, and everything. And, and here's this poor cripple. And the contrast would really make you feel sorry for the guy and, and hand him some money. There was also a gate called the dung gate. That's not so beautiful. That's where you'd bring your, your, your toilet products, right? That's where you'd bring your household garbage. And that's what Paul's talking about. He said, I consider all that stuff refuse, dung. Why? He said, compared to the surpassing. Surpassing means something greater is now here. Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have rejected, I've thrown away all that stuff that was of value. Look at, look at Philippians 1. Paul says this, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Here, by the way, is prison. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And what he's talking about is, some people were excited about Jesus and they're preaching Christ. Some people keep bringing up Jesus knowing it's going to cause problems for Paul in prison. Oh man, you said that Paul guy is preaching Jesus. And knowing that as it irks people and as it agitates people, it might cause problems for Paul while he's... In, he's not writing this theoretically. He's in chains while he's writing this. And I love what he says in verse 18. What does it matter? 
Well, it matters, Paul, because you might get whipped. It matters, Paul, because somebody might come in there and, and, and beat the snot out of you just because they're upset at what somebody said today. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. I want to be that. I, you, you know who I think of? I, I think of, besides Paul, I think of Moses. The only two men in the Bible that prayed for God to cut them off so somebody else would be saved. God was about to wipe out the people of Israel and Moses says, look, blot my name out of your book, but save them. Could you pray like that? Paul said, I would be a curse. I would choose to be cut off for the sake of my brethren, the Jews. Could you pray? God, send me to hell and let them get saved. That, that's like love at a whole other level. And the only way that's possible is to have your mind fixed on the things of heaven so that the realities of the mind of Christ become your own. And Paul could pray that and be real about it. He, this wasn't theoretical. This wasn't some kind of, I mean, all of us are, yeah, I think I could do that. I think I could. There was a line last night in the movie where, where Aslan is talking to Lucy and I think I can be brave enough, right? But you're just supposing Paul is actually in the midst of that circumstance. A few chapters later in Philippians 3, he says this. And he's speaking about Christians. And this is what's heartbreaking. He's, this is the contrast to the kind of mindset he was just talking about. He says, as I've often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, you notice he doesn't say many are enemies. He said they're living that way. Why? Their, God, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things their mind is on earthly things in other words they're just they're living to satisfy their own desires and they think that Jesus is some kind of insurance policy for down the road they, they think that that's what that the whole thing the idea of the cross is that it's just you know what I get to live like I want I get to satisfy my own cravings and my own appetites and Paul is saying their destiny is destruction what causes them like I said it doesn't say they consider themselves enemies of God, but that they live that way. And they live that way because their mind is on this world, not on their true country. And the key is verse 19, and that should be a serious wake-up call. Because what was a terminal defect in the early church has become normalized in the church today. Paul said, he's not, look, I'm not mad. He said, I'm saying this with weeping. I'm saying this with tears in my eyes. If he were talking about the lost, he'd say, hey, we need to preach this more, more fervently. But he's talking about confessing Christians who are living as enemies of the cross of Christ. What that means is these people may not, they may not even know that he's talking about them. But they are living their lives in such a way that it is in conflict to the work that Jesus did on the cross. Like I said, he doesn't say they are enemies. But their lives are being lived in ways that puts them in direct opposition to the work of Christ on the cross and the work that he's trying to do as our high priest. Because why? Where their minds are focused. Most of us, we don't even give a second thought to that. We think of that as some kind of incidental thing. We think of that as, how you know, I guess when I develop more and I get more mature, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll start thinking about these areas. Paul says this is critical to how you behave in this world. Now, radical discipleship shouldn't be radical, but it is. And it's uncommon because what's real to us is what we focus on, and that dictates what we act upon. 
right now in this church generation, the world is far more real than Jesus is than the way we live our daily lives. Twice in two verses. We're told not to just set our minds, but also our hearts, which means our desires and affections on things above where Christ is. Why? Because that determines the way we'll live in this world that we minister to. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, Where your treasure is, there will your hearts be also. Now, is there anybody here who knows what IBM stock did this week? Nobody. But I bet if you had your life savings in IBM, you would. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. That's where your attention's going to be. That's where your mind's going to be. And so what we're invested in will determine what we really value on this earth. I, I don't know why we always believe that we're not the one Scripture is warning. Like there's this other group of Christians out there that, you know, is warning those Christians out there. It's not really warning us. Like we're not the ones whose God is our stomach. We're not the ones who, who are living for our own appetites. Who's the word talking about then? Some extinct species of Christian that used to exist but doesn't exist anymore? I wish that were true. The church today is filled with men who view pornography, who lust in their hearts for someone other than their wives, women who talk behind the back of their brothers and sisters, run down their husbands, children who openly disrespect their parents, pastors who preach only feel-good messages or stay away from passages that might expose someone else's sin, including their own, and believers who covet everything from how much hair somebody has to how big a house or paycheck they get and amuse themselves with violence and profanity and, and, and sensuality because we're earthly-minded. We don't do those things because Jesus tells us to. And we don't do those things because the Holy Spirit is instructing us to. We do those things because we've learned from the culture around us how to live and how to behave. Look, I grew up in South Florida. And you could always tell a tourist because they're wearing like Hawaiian shirts. Like you're 3,000 miles away from Hawaii. Why are you wearing Hawaiian shirts? I don't... I, I, you know, back in the day, before everybody had a smartphone, they'd be wearing cameras. They had ridiculous white stuff on their nose, right? They're, they looked like tourists. They looked ridiculous, right? I, I, and I wonder how many of us look that way to the, to the kingdom of heaven. We look like we show up for church, and, and we're not really immersing ourselves. We're just kind of taking a few snapshots of heaven. Well, I felt, that sermon felt good, or well, that song felt good, or I really like that, or man, I went down to the altar. And, I, and it's just a snapshot, and it's here and gone. And we go home like the tourists do, and they're right back to their culture. Right back to being who they always were. I'm afraid of what we do in churches a lot of that. We're not immersing ourselves in the values and customs of that place. And if we don't, we will immerse ourselves in something. We won't be valueless. We'll just absorb our values from what's around us. Some of us were so blown away by how just adamant the world can be about stuff that is just blatantly immoral, but they seem to think it's moral. And we're shocked and we're blown. How in the world can you look at this and think that that's right and think that that's good? And yet they will argue with you. Why? Because if you don't have one set of values, you will adopt another. And it's true for us as well. If we don't immerse ourselves in the values and customs of the kingdom, we will immerse ourselves in the values and customs of this earth. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But you know what I love? The very next words. If you have your Bible open, you look at the very next words. But our citizenship is in heaven. 
Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their own appetites. They live for what they want. They covet, they crave, but our citizenship. And I love it. It's very similar to Hebrews where all these warnings are. And, and then Paul says, but I'm confident in better things for you. And I love that because like I said, I look at, at John 21 and, and I mentioned that earlier. What is so cool about John 21? And you wouldn't notice this unless you had some, uh, some Greek background. But when Jesus, they get to the shore and Jesus is making a fire. And I mean, he's like trolling them so bad because here they are fishing and he's already got fish. I don't know where he got the fish from. He's already got fish and he's already cooking the fish. And, and John uses a word for the fire, charcoal fire. It's a really obscure Greek word. And it's only used one other place in all of scripture. And that's three chapters earlier in John 18. This isn't by accident, guys. This gives us, it's just such a radical picture. Three chapters earlier, you want to know what's going on? Peter is around another fire. And he's warming himself by that fire. And guess who he's surrounded with? The people who were saying crucify. The people who wanted to murder Jesus. And he's so affected by that, that what does he do? Three times he denies Jesus. I don't know him. Never met him. The third time it says he, he denied him with curses. And now we see three chapters later around another fire in the presence of Jesus. And he's being restored. And he's being healed. What surrounds you will impact the way you live. It will impact the way you think. It will impact the way you worship. It will impact your ability to receive the blessings and the favor and the transformative work of God. So I want us to think for a minute about where our values really come from. Do they come from mom and dad? Do they come from school? Do they come from society? And now ask yourself if they're the values of heaven. Do I make excuses for living a less than life or am I going full on after the standards of heaven? I want to share one more quote. Having watched Narnia last night, C.S. Lewis on my mind, he said this in Mere Christianity. He's speaking about people who will always kind of make excuses for their life. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. The problem is Jesus said, be perfect. The problem is Paul said, I pray for your perfection. The problem is Paul says, aim for perfection. Now, you may never reach it on this earth, but let me tell you what, you will never live anything short of it in, in the kingdom of God. Everything there is perfect. And so C.S. Lewis responded this way. When Jesus said, be perfect, he meant it. He meant we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard, but the sort of compromise we're all hankering after is harder. In fact, it is impossible. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present. And you cannot go on indefinitely being an ordinary, decent egg. You must be hatched or go bad. Who in this place is ready to look full on into the way things will be at the renewal of the kingdom of God and say to Jesus, if it won't fit then, if it wouldn't fit before your throne now, it shouldn't be in my life. Come on, let's stand together. Lord, as we shared communion earlier, we did so by taking a conscious look inside of ourselves. 
And Lord, we entered back into worship and entered back into praise as we're about to do for the next few moments. Lord, I know that you're not just looking for tones and melodies and lyrics. You're looking for worship that is of the heart. You're looking for worship that yields to your desires and your will. And I pray, Father, that we would offer that. Church, as this praise team ministers, I want you to ask yourself that question. Is there anything in my life that would not fit any way of thinking, any attitude, any practice that will not fit then? And if it won't fit then, then the time to reject it, like Paul said, I consider it garbage, refuse, dung. The time to reject it is now. I want to pray with you. I open up this altar. Don't worry about what anybody else does. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you, there's a mindset, there's an attitude, there's a relationship, there's a, there's a practice, there's an appetite. It won't fit at the renewal of all things. Then the time to lay it down is now. Amen.